0: The words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. It's pretty good. So we continue our march through Easter. And this week, is to help us in this journey, we're given the story of Dorcas or Tabitha. This story is an important story in the book of Acts uh, for a number of reasons. So, how many women do you think were filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts? Lots of men were, but how many women? Very few? One? One? So the answer is none. So while Luke can be said with his gospel to be a, a leader for the inclusion of women in the, in the disciples and in leadership in the church, when it comes to a second volume, a lot less so. So there are lots of men are uh, filled with the Holy Spirit and allowed to do amazing things in leadership roles, but no women. So, but it does use a term which is female disciple, a woman disciple. How many of those... Unnamed. Any guesses? No, not none. Two. One. 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 And her name is? Dorcas. Dorcas. Very good. So we heard the story of the one woman disciple who is actually named in Acts. And all the others remain nameless. So she is a significant figure in the book of Acts, simply because she is named. So what do we know about her? Well, not a lot really, do we? We know her name, Dorcas or Tabitha, and uh, we know that she lived a life of service with acts of charity, and uh, at least one of the commentators I read, wondered whether that life of service may be at the cost of her life, that she overdid it, uh, which is um, a common story amongst the female saints down the centuries. And she's also sometimes portrayed as a poor widow. But there is some question about that because of the phrase, they laid her body in the upper room. Now, if this was her house and she had an upper room, that would mean that she was actually someone of substance. Because ordinary people didn't have upper rooms. They had to struggle to get a roof over their heads and to put the bread on the table. But upper rooms, not something they had. So to be someone with an upper room was to be someone of some substance and wealth. And so some of the commentators wonder whether in fact she was a person of substance and wealth. And as such, whether she understood that substance and wealth and position as, well, as a disciple, that that carried responsibility, not to preserve that substance as wealth, but in terms of responsibility to others, as a disciple, her wealth and her position was a gift to share, not something to be maintained. And so we can see that she shared that gift with widows and orphans, with the homeless, the hungry, the sick, all those who had been pushed to the edges of her society, the marginalised. She freely and generously gave. And she acts as a model for us as we continue to reflect on what Jesus' resurrection means us, Well, it's still Easter, and it's been going to be Easter for a while yet. We're about halfway through. The season of Easter lasts for 49 days, from Easter Sunday, the first Sunday of Easter, through to the day before Pentecost Sunday, 49 days, about one-fifth of the year. And some people have described it as the Sunday of the year. It is the great celebration. That's why we still have the cross we made on Easter Sunday up front, and that's why we will light the Easter, the Paschal candle every Sunday and leave it by the cross in a prominent position to remind us that this season is about the resurrection of Jesus. Easter is all about resurrection. It celebrates Jesus' resurrection which gets pretty hard to do week after week as you can tell by the fact that I keep forgetting to do the Alleluia Christ has risen at the beginning of the service which we should do at the beginning of all the services it's kind of hard to keep the party going for seven weeks really isn't it but that's what we're supposed to do it is more than just remembering and celebrating though Easter reminds us that Jesus' physical resurrection is God's commitment to this world and all who live in it. Now, I don't want to get into the science of the resurrection, and you can get really hooked up about whether it really happened that way and what a physical resurrection really means in a scientific way. The importance of the resurrection is the theology. And the gospel writers were writing theology. Sure, from their point of view, they were basing that on history. But I think sometimes we, when we throw away the history and say, oh, well, I don't believe that, we lose the theology. And the theology is what's of paramount importance. And the theology is that in the physical resurrection, God declared God's commitment to this world and all who live in it. And the danger is we keep thinking that God's commitment is to heaven and that the good guys will all go off to heaven. And this world, which is a terrible place, will, I don't know, burn and all the rest of the nasty things. And that's the exact opposite of what the physical resurrection is all about. It is about this world. God's commitment to this world. At the heart of the Christian faith is the death and resurrection of Jesus And that was understood by Paul and by the Gospel writers as God's extravagant gift of love that fulfills all our hopes and longings, all the hopes and longings held in creation and all the hopes and longings of the people of God held in the covenant. It held all the hopes embedded in the various understandings of Messiah when history would reach its climax and creation would be restored. And all would be drawn into life offered by God. And this is a big and huge picture, which we too often try to make small and understandable and reduce to when I die, I will go to heaven. It's so much bigger than that. The death and resurrection of Jesus for the gospel writers was a world changing event. It was a cosmos-changing event. So, to recap what we've heard so far this Easter, to help us grab this huge and big picture, on the first Sunday, we heard about the empty tomb, and we heard that Mary Magdalene was the first person to both see and report that she had seen the risen Lord. And then we heard about Thomas, who I suggested asks the questions that we want to ask. And then last week we had Peter, whose deep shame was met by Jesus' unconditional love. A love that turned him around and allowed him to once again be a disciple. Each of these stories invites us into the story of the resurrection. To allow the story of the resurrection to be a life-changing event for us. Each story helped those disciples see how they were changed. It changed how they saw God, how they saw the world, and how they lived their lives. And that story invites us to do the same, to see ourselves changed in that event. To see how we see God changed by that event. How we see the world changed by that event. And how we live our lives And so today is Good Shepherd Sunday, which this picture is all about. I've never noticed this, but actually every fourth Sunday of Easter is Good Shepherd Sunday. This is the fifth time where I've preached on it in a row. And I've never actually noticed that on on the fourth Sunday of Easter, we always have the 23rd Psalm. And we always have a chunk of John 10. So we've walked our way slowly through John 10, which is all about... The Good Shepherd. This is a tradition, as I said, I mean, I read a book about this last year, and I was thinking, oh, I wonder where I put those notes. And then I thought, oh, probably in the file with Fourth Sunday of Easter. And sure enough, there they were. <laughs> exactly a year ago. So, last year I talked about the 23rd Psalm, which we said this morning. And last year I talked about I talked about it from the point of view of what a shepherd in the Middle East is like, and actually said the 23rd Psalm just describes the job description of a shepherd in the Middle East. Still today, that's what they do. The 23rd Psalm is important not only for what it says, but because it was the starting point of a tradition that was reinterpreted again and again through a whole lot of new events. To offer hope and meaning to those new events. Right through to the Gospels, where it was reinterpreted again to give hope and meaning. And so that original psalm was expanded and given new life. And so one of the things, for example, there was the one sheep in the 23rd psalm became a flock. To represent all the people of God and eventually represented all people. And eventually this tradition became attached to the hopes for the coming Messiah. When God the shepherd would act with compassion and seek out and restore all the people of God. And it's this tradition which Jesus picks up and applies to himself. And we can see that in each of the gospels. In Luke 10, when he talks about the stories of the lost sheep, the lost coins, and the lost sons, which we've already talked about this year. In Matthew 18, with the story of the lost sheep. In Mark 6, interestingly, with the feeding of the 5,000, which is part of the Good Shepherd tradition. And finally, here in John 10, the focus of the fourth Sunday of Easter, every year. And each reinterpretation intensifies that tradition it is offered to us during Easter as a way to help us understand the resurrection of Jesus the Good Shepherd and to help us see God at work through the Good Shepherd so that we might know that in the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, we are being restored. All of life is being restored. So I can't actually remember what pictures I put on this. So this is a bit of a... We'll push the button and see what happens. Now, a central piece of this tradition around the Messiah was at the end of this age, God's Messiah would gather up the people of God and return them to the land, restore them to the land, rebuild the temple, and bring in an age of peace and justice. God's peace and justice. And for the Gospel writers and Paul... Jesus is the fulfilment of all those hopes. He is the one gathering all the people. He is the new temple, and his death is seen as an outrageous act of love that both reopens our eyes and opens our ears, so that we are able to see who we are and whose we are, and to we are able to recognise the voice of God in our lives. In the hope. That this fulfilment is happening around us. So that brings us back to Dorcas, who we started with. Dorcas for us today, the role of Dorcas for us today is to show us what it looks like when we live our lives in the reality of Jesus' resurrection. She lived with the same generosity that she had experienced from the risen Jesus. She lived responding to the voice of God she had heard in the risen Jesus, knowing that that was who she truly was. She lived not fearing death, but also not shunning this life, because she was filled with a generosity that allowed others to see and hear the life that she was now filled with. She lived the gospel. She lived eternal life, now. And we are invited to join her, to be a people of resurrection. We are invited to join with all the saints, to be people who show in our everyday acts of generosity and love. Generosity and love to all people, that we are to be God's commitment to this world and all who live in it. That is our role, to live out the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection for all people.